The best way to follow today's sermon is to open your Bibles to 1 John 5. I'm Daniel Lim. It is my joy to share <clears throat> God's Word with you. I'm also the chaplain of the Boys and Girls Brigade here in ARPC. We share 28 company. Woohoo! <laughs> Which 28 company is here with us today, you know, and I'm uh, very glad and I welcome all of you. So in one of the leadership camps, as you can see in a, in a, a picture, in one of the leadership camps, uh, I noticed that there was this um, trainer. He looks very distracted, as though as he has something bothering him in his, in his mind. So when he knew that I was working for a church, he came over and asked me, he said, hey, hey, Daniel. He said, my pastor quoted from this book of Haggai. The pastor said, take care of the house of the Lord and the Lord will take care of your problems and lift you up. Then I realized what the pastor really meant was he was actually asking the trainer to give the $50,000 that he had uh, saved for his house reno for the building of the church. Because of this, the trainer had many quarrels with his wife. He wanted to please God by obeying his word. Therefore, the struggle with his wife. It's been some time since I have um, heard what false teaching sounds like. Having a wrong understanding of giving, you might lose money, you might cause some tension in your family. But in John 1, in 1 John, the issues that Apostle John is addressing concerns a far greater issue. The wrong belief of who Jesus is will result in idolatry. Or worse, it will affect your salvation. As we come to the last chapter of 1 John, I believe that we have all benefited much from the teaching of this episode. You will probably hear every preacher commenting on the unique style that John writes as he goes in circles and every time building on his argument and every time he adds on new information. So just to recap, the main reasons why John write this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. First reason, from chapter 1, verse 4. Our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus will make our joy complete. Because of the testimonies of who Jesus is, and as His people, we can have fellowship, and the joy is complete when we share this with everyone. Second reason, from chapter 2, verse 26 to believers, about those who are trying to lead us astray. Apostle John is fighting against false teachers, which one group denied the divinity of Christ and the other the humanity of Christ. The third reason, from chapter 5, verse 13, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is emphasizing this due to false teachers denying Jesus' divinity and eternal life through him. So with the author's main reasons in mind, 
we look at the breakdown of this letter by John Stott. The author started the letter with the first four verses introducing Jesus as the incarnation of the word of life. Subsequently, in chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2, Apostle John then brings in the apostolic message and the, the moral implications to strengthen the reader's commitment to what they already know concerning Jesus as the Son of God. Following, he had three applications of the test of love, obedience and truth. That actually brings us then to today's sermon, which summarizes all these three tests and continues to show that how believing in Jesus brings assurance. John, uh, 1 John verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. What does it mean to be born of God? Using this diagram, verse 1 tells us that we first have to believe that Jesus is the Christ. This itself is the truth test. So if you believe in this truth, Apostle John tells us that someone born of God will also love God, the Father, and love all children of God. This is the love test. Loving one another is a sign of how much we love God. In verses 2 and 3, John refers to this as the obedience test, where the believer has to obey God's commands. In 1 John 3, verse 23, he tells us that the commands of God are previously understood as love for one another and to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. For John tells us that God's commandments are not burdensome as it is done out of love for God. In Psalms 19, I like the way in how King David actually expresses his delight in obeying God's command. He describes the law as, as you can see in the screen, verse 7, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes, more desired than fine gold, sweeter than honey. He realized in keeping them will have great reward. And God's commands are not burdensome if we truly love God. The moment when we start loving God and displaying it by obeying His commands, things change. The way you talk, the way you think, the way you prioritize your life, it is all different. People around you can actually sense it. So my mother-in-law, she was diagnosed with uh, stage 3 cancer um, and required an operation sometime back. Since it's a major op, we decided um, to seek a second opinion and we checked with one of the 
doctors here in ARPC. He re-examined her. He provided an alternative option. He also encouraged her um, to pray to God and her concerns about her concerns and trust in God. These words actually gave her the confidence to go through the operation. As a widow, my mother-in-law can only depend on her children to take care of her. She had many concerns in her mind, including the procedure, the heavy medical expenses, so on and so forth. So after the operation, when I saw her holding the bill, she broke down and she cried. Oh, I, I tell myself, oh no, you know, we are in trouble. It must be so much money that my mother-in-law is so sad. So when I took the bill over to have a look, then I realised the doctor waived his fees. I was awed, awed by the display of love and grace by a fellow Christian. Thank you for showing love to my mother-in-law. As a church, our willingness to be involved in the life of a fellow Christian, regardless how complicated it is, is a sign of love for God. Those who genuinely love God will not just pass all the three tests, but will overcome the world. The true Christian, born of God, believes in the Son of God, loves God and the children of God, and keeps the command of God. Each one involves the other. Belief, love, and obedience are marks of the new birth. 1 John 5, verse 4 to 5 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The word overcome the world here appears three times. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What does the world here refer to then? That those who come to faith are no longer of this world. In 1 John 2, 15-17 explains that the term the world refers to everything of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In 1 John 3, 1, states that the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. The world used here has a negative connotation of not knowing God, which therefore explains its waywardness. In chapter 3, verse 13, describes further that this world, in fact, hates believers of Jesus. In 1 John 4, verse 4 to 5, John's meaning of overcome is not about conquering the evil one or the false teachers that belong to the world. Rather, by loving God, loving our believers, and believing in God's Son. 
believers can then surpass the world because we are enabled by the Holy Spirit who is far greater. The faith that overcomes the world is very specific belief that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 5, this statement itself is literally the core of this letter. It is also the same statement that the false prophets or the teachers are trying to deny. To overcome the world, believers must persist in our faith in Jesus despite the propaganda of the false teachers. We surrender our whole world to Jesus so that we can live this new life born of God. What is it like then to have victory over the world? I will always imagine the world as this road, like what you see in the picture, clouded with thick fog. Similar to the roads that when I drive in Cameron Highlands in the early mornings where this visibility is really low, sometimes not even, you know, I can't even see up to five meters. But when I drive, I focus on the white line that's in the middle of the road to guide me. I can eventually make it to the top. The lines on the road are like the helpful guides we need in life. But first, I need to trust the lines. Just like our faith in Jesus as the Son of God is pivotal to overcoming the world. We don't go looking elsewhere to find that victory over the world. 1 John 5, verse 6 to 8 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the tree are in agreement. Our belief in Jesus as the Son of God brings assurance of our salvation. In this segment of the passage, John uses this legal term, testify, as he builds his case to prove of, with all these three weaknesses, water, blood, and spirit. So according to the Jewish law, it is vital that the testimonies of three weaknesses should agree before it is considered a truth. Thus, to come by water only is insufficient to prove. So verse 6 describes the one who came by water and blood, which is Jesus Christ. The word came by in verse 6 indicates the start of something or entering into a new phase. In verses 6 to 8, there are many mentions of water and blood. So what is the symbolic meaning behind it? Next slide. <clears throat> There are many views on this. A Bible commentary from Constantine compared all these views and concluded that water here signifies the baptism of Christ because immediately after that, Jesus entered into ministry. On the other hand, blood signifies the, Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of his blood, the forgiveness of sins, a sacrificial lamb who died for sinners like you and me. The water and blood testify Jesus came to serve 
and die for humanity. The events that the water and blood symbolizes constitutes a human testimony, proving Jesus' humanity. While the Spirit is no doubt God's testimony, proving the divinity of Christ. In 1 John, the Spirit testifying role is mainly bearing witness to believers concerning the truth of the message about Jesus, which we heard from the beginning, as you see here in verse um, chapter 2, verse 24 to 27, that John asked the believers not to be deceived by the false teachers, but let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. The anointing from the Spirit teaches us everything and is true. The Spirit unveils these unbelieving eyes and allows us to witness and accept the truth. Just like how John here declared in chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. Likewise, John also pronounced that the Spirit is truth. Marshall explains that the most obvious interpretation that the Spirit is presently testify to us in our inward hearts and through the preaching of the Word, that baptism and the death of Jesus points to Him being the Christ and the Son of God. Every believer has this common experience with the Spirit. We all witness the work of Christ through the Spirit in us, but in different ways. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. So water, blood, and Spirit provide this wholesome view of who Jesus is, being 100% human and 100% God. Verses 9 says, We accept God's testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Sorry, we accept human's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which has given about His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they do not believe the testimony God has given about His Son. God's testimony is greater than human's testimony. John refers to the water and blood as, hum as part of human's testimony. They are events in history that human witness and testify about the humanity of Christ. And if we can accept that, how can we not accept God's testimony of His Son? So during the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.17, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. So only those who believe in Jesus have accepted God's testimony. Yet here, we are also given a choice. If we turn away from God's testimony, verse 10 tells us we have made God out to be a liar by ignoring what God proclaimed about His Son from the very beginning. In verses 11 to 12, you can find the essence of the gospel. Some commentaries say that this verse is the most significant in the whole New Testament. 
Apostle John then assures the believers that eternal life only comes through God and through His Son, Jesus. There is no other way around it. John writes in plain, straightforward manner that requires every individual to have an answer for this ultimate question. To believe in the Son is to have the Son, and to have the Son is to have eternal life. The Son is the life. So the question is, do you believe in the Son? The testimony is directed to all who claims or to clear all the claims made by the Antichrist that denies the eternal life that Jesus promises. So when I went for reservists, um, it's quite similar to what you see in this picture, although some of you may think that I'm based in a canteen. Um, it is an, my office is actually this area with tall lalang grass. You know, I've been to this same place for the, uh, many years, and I know the place really well. So during an enemy intrusion drill, you know, where my young gang-ho officer gathered a few of us to flank the enemy from the right, I warned him against it. I said, hey, sir, um, this area has many potholes and it's dangerous to bash through the thick grass because we cannot see the potholes. But he says, hey, Daniel, I know, I know. But still, he charged straight into the grass and then he ordered for all of us, follow me. Of course, we follow, but behind him, Immediately, he went straight into the, the pothole and he disappeared. <laughs> well, he came out of the pothole and immediately, you know, to avoid embarrassment, he quickly pointed to another direction and ordered us to charge again. In a few steps, he went straight into another pothole. <laughs> like my young gang-ho officer, we all claim we know all these biblical truths that is on the screen here. You know, we, we kind of take all of them. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We trust God's testimony and we, have give, and we know that God has given us eternal life through Jesus. We take all this. But our actions do not show that we know. In that case, we make God a liar. Like how my officer made me a liar. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't just give us eternal life but a new meaning to life. How do I then apply it to my day-to-day -day life? I become cautious that my sins are then paid at a price, a heavy price. And constantly I have to stop myself from practicing habitual sinning, turning my eyes away from certain social media sites, unhelpful Netflix movies, and even walk away from unwholesome talk, you know, gossip, and so on and so forth, and fill my life with prayers. Prayers for my GB officers, BB officers, discipleship group, and my family. Praying for fellow believers is the first step to loving them. So believing in Jesus brings assurance through prayer. Because of our belief in Jesus, we can be confident to approach God for our needs. In verses 14 to 17, it's telling us when we pray, 
God hears us if we ask anything according to His will. When we submit to God's will, done in God's time, will not fail God's providence. The will of God is definitely within these boundaries, the boundaries of His command to love God and love fellow believers. To pray effectively, believers' requests need to be in accordance with the teaching of Scripture concerning what pleases God. So my, Josh, uh, my son, my younger son Joshua, um, saw me giving weekly recess money you know, to my elder son. But he was pretty young then. He's, he also started to ask me, say, Papa, you know, can I have recess money also? But he, he did not realise that he was still attending childcare then. <laughs> there is no need of money. All meals are provided. In fact, it's all you can eat. So I told Joshua, I said, if you need anything, just let Papa know. If it doesn't harm you, I will buy it for you. All you need to do is ask. But little did he know that all this while, I was always observing him. You know, the things he touched, the things he likes. And before he even asked, I would already buy it for him. So our relationship with God is one like a father and a child. Our requests are based on this recognition that God knows best what is good for us. Jesus, in his last moments at Gethsemane, before his betrayal, Jesus prayed Mark 14, 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is praying for God's will and not his own will to be accomplished in the end. Prayer helps us align ourselves with God's will. This prayer also shows that Jesus is concerned about the things of God over himself. God also prayed, Jesus also prayed, sorry, for his disciples and believers in John 17 later, that reveals his heart of those around him. Prayer is a believer's responsibility and privilege, especially when God assures us that he hears our prayer. Apostle John asks the believers to pray for any brother and sister who has not committed this particular sin. He seems to suggest that there is hope and when we pray, God will give them life. So what exactly is this sin that leads to death? If you were to read in context of the epistle, I would choose to think that this sin refers to the sin of rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. In chapter 2, verse 19, when John addressed the Antichrist and the people who left them, the passage seems to suggest that they are turning away from the truth and denying Jesus as the Son of God that they do not have eternal life in the first place. The moment they have hardened their hearts to ignore the truth and to leave the fellowship, they have already turned their backs from God, despite all the testimonies from God and human. 
John is qualifying his statement that a sin that leads to death is not something we pray for. We cannot pray for God to give life when they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Only through Jesus will you have life. So for any brother and sister referring to the believers, John says that it is our responsibility then to pray for them to stop habitual sinning. For 1 John 3.6 tells us that anyone who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. We must pray for them that they will not miss out on the eternal life that has been promised to them. Verse 17 tells us the fact that there is only one sin, which is the rejection of God. All sin leads to the rejection of God, which leads eventually to death. Like what Paul says in Romans 6, 20, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we believe in Jesus, He is able and willing to forgive us. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. <coughs> Lastly, our belief in Jesus brings freedom from habitual sinning. Verses 18 to 20 summarizes our newfound freedom of being born of God. John uses these three affirmations, you know, taking up the theme of we know that. First affirmation, verse 18, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Sin and being born of God is incompatible. Anyone who is born of God expresses truth. That he can, it's not that he can never fall back to sin, but he will never, I repeat, he will never allow himself to live harmoniously with habitual sin. Those born of God now belong to God's family and enjoy his protection. They no longer identify themselves with the ways of the world and the pattern of sin. Thus, the evil one does not touch him. Second affirmation, verse 19, we have taken on this new identity as born of God. We are no longer under the control of the evil one like the world is. The world that is controlled by the evil one will be convinced that there's actually no need to acknowledge, no, no need to acknowledge our sin, no need to confess we cannot undermine the power of the evil one who traps and chains the world. The third affirmation from verse 20 is the most fundamental of the three. And we know that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to, under to understand. Without Jesus, we can neither be rescued from the evil one or delivered from the world. Without Jesus, we can neither know God or overcome sin. The call to know Him who is true, having the knowledge of God. The call to be in Him who is true, having the communion with God. The final proclamation that states here that He is the true God and eternal life. 
verifying Jesus' identity is the final blow to the false teachers who reject Jesus and who He is. So, dear children, keep yourself from idols. In verse 21, verse 21, will we heed John's warning and keep ourselves from idols? Any other worship apart from Jesus being the centre of our faith is idolatry. By leaving the community of believers and following the false teachers, by leaving Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, the truth and the eternal life, we have turned to idolatry and, they commit, and we commit the sin that leads to death. Will you still be like... <clears throat> Will you still be like my young gang-ho officer? He's warned of the danger and he proceeds to charge into it. He recovers and does it again. We should be certain that believing in Jesus brings assurance of salvation, prayer and freedom from sin. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for sending your Son, that so that we can know you and be called children of God. We know your steadfast love will never cease. We know your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hold us, Lord, close to you. May our deeds of love be pleasing to you. Protect us, Lord, from the evil one and not let the evil one have a foothold in our lives. May our confidence be in Christ alone. In Jesus, the mighty name who saves. Amen. Amen.